Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Lynn Alden. Lynn is an economist specializing in global macroeconomics, currency markets, and equity valuations. She runs her own website, lynnalden.com, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-E-N.com, which provides retail and institutional investment research services. Lynn first got into uh, writing about cryptocurrencies in November 2017 and um, made her first investment in 2020. In July 2020, she wrote a widely circulated article on Bitcoin 
entitled Three Reasons I'm Investing in Bitcoin. And it was a pretty solid and clear statement of the investment case for Bitcoin, I think. Um, Lynn is also an engineer, an electronic engineer by training, which uh, explains why she understands Bitcoin so well, because I think engineers are naturally uh, likely to be uh, better at getting Bitcoin and how it works. So um, as somebody who studied in engineering, although I never really worked in it, I still like to... um, count myself as among the engineers and so i always uh, like to stress on this point so lynn thank you for joining us thanks for having me back again happy to be here yes we've had lynn before uh, which was a very interesting conversation and we'll post the notes to your first uh interview here so um you're one of the uh people who i think follows the macroeconomics and bitcoin in um um, in, in a very competent and um, well-researched and very reasonable way. So your analysis of Bitcoin and your analysis of the market, I think, are quite valuable. So that's why I, I always enjoy uh, talking to you and seeing what you have to say on uh, global macroeconomics. Uh, this has been a pretty eventful week in uh, global markets, both uh, digital and analog with uh, pretty bad drawdowns happening across uh, the board pretty much everywhere. And all because of um, supposedly the Fed engaging in tightening monetary policy. The Fed's made noises about tightening and um, they haven't tightened yet, but uh, the markets are already reacting as if they are going to tighten. So what do you think of this? What do you make of this uh, so far? Yeah, so I think there's we can zoom out and focus on the big picture, focus on the micro picture. So in the, in the very kind of big picture sense, because of how much debt is in the system, uh, the Federal Reserve has a really tough time raising interest rates. Basically, they lowered interest rates so much through so many cycles that they encouraged so much debt to build up in the first place. And so they kind of trapped themselves into a corner where it's very hard to tighten monetary policy without basically burning everything down. Uh, and so they, they made a decision last year, you know, before they, you know, ever since 2012 or so, they've had this target of 2% inflation, uh, at the way they measure it, CPI. Uh, actually, they, they use a, a similar metric to uh, uh, CPI. But anyway, they, they want to have 2% inflation. And starting last year, they talked about how instead of making that kind of a ceiling, they were going to kind of make that like an average. They wanted to purposely overshoot inflation uh, and basically err on the side of, you know, uh, continuing stimulus. Um, and that kind of came back to bite them, I think, pretty quickly because, you know, they were hoping to get maybe 3 4% official CPI. Uh, and instead, we, we have 7% CPI uh, and still technically uh, inching up here. And so the Fed, you know, they, they were uh, insisting that inflation was transitory. Uh, but once it started to hit those rather alarming headline levels, you know, 30, 40-year highs, uh, you know, they, they changed their tune pretty quickly. And they started talking about, you know, pulling back on quantitative easing, uh, raising interest rates, uh, and potentially even doing quantitative tightening. And the challenge is that they they partially kind of missed their window because, you know, if you look at, say, uh, indicators of economic activity, right? So, for example, if you look at purchasing managers' indices, it's kind of a rate of change metric for what the economy is doing. Uh, when it's over 50, it means that you're basically it's expanding. When it's below 50, it's contract contracting, but also gives us direction. So, for example, if it goes up to 60 and then falls down to 55, it's still growing, but it's decelerating. Uh, and, and generally, if you look at the at the purchasing manager and you see that the PMI over the long term, it looks like a sine wave that kind of you know bounces around 50, uh, generally between 60 and 40, and sometimes you get these you know uh, uh, crazy spikes or dips, uh, and so as we enter 2022, PMIs are rolling over, 
uh, and these tend to have roughly three-year cycles. I mean, you can have you can have a couple different PMI cycles in uh, you know in something that's defined as an economic expansion because you have these ebbs and these flows. And the problem now is that the Fed is looking to tighten into a, a decelerating economy by by most indicators. And we had a similar effect back in late 2018, right? So when they were when they were raising rates in 2017, um, they had the backdrop of you know rising PMIs. Uh, they had, you know, the, the the fiscal authorities were doing tax cuts on the horizon, so you essentially had a form of fiscal stimulus, basically cutting taxes without cutting spending, uh, and so they they had that kind of stronger environment to try to tighten into. Uh, but as that kind of dragged out to late 2018, they started to run into headwinds with that, and now they're kind of starting from a similar position, except they're just starting talking about tightening when PMIs are already rolling over. And so the market's throwing a fit, and then you add, you know, geopolitical risks related to Ukraine, all sorts of, you know, macro things out there, and it's a really tough time for them to, you know, kind of continue on that track. And they kind of – it's kind of an evidence of themselves painting themselves into a corner. Yeah, and, uh, you know, for people who are inclined to view things from the Austrian perspective or uh, – uh, at least not from the Keynesian perspective. I think the mere fact that we find the, the this combination of them having to ease, or of them having to tighten into a um, into, into a slowing economy, is in itself a refutation of the uh, of the way that Keynesians think that an economy works. Because according to the way that Keynesian economics thinks, Keynesian economists think. This shouldn't be possible. This isn't something that should happen because it's the level of spending that determines everything in the economy. And so if the level of spending is high, then you have inflation along with a growing and overheating economy. Whereas if the level of spending is low, then you have um, low inflation or maybe even deflation. But you also have a, a stagnating economy. So you can't have both a stagnating economy and an inflation because the demand for the aggregate demand is what determines either, and you have a trade-off between the two. So essentially, the entirety of Keynesian economics is built on this ridiculous idea that there is a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, and that uh, um, we can essentially we, we can't get rid of that trade-off. We can only pick certain places among among uh, among these different combinations of high inflation and low unemployment, or high unemployment and low in, uh, inflation. Um, but, uh, you know, they've been down this corner before. You know, every time, more or less, we see something like this, like 2008, 2009 was something similar, and yet they continued with the expansionism, with expansionary monetary policy. Um, and inflation was not that bad. Now, why do you think things are, um, that inflation is so bad this time in particular? So a couple factors. If you look after 2008, uh, you had a massive amount of leverage in the system. So if you look at, say, the U U.S. financial markets, uh, if you look at total debt compared to the monetary base, it was a multiple of about 64. So you had 64 times as many claims on base money as there was base money. Uh, you could also look at broad money supply to base money. Uh, I forget the exact ratio, but it was it was um, uh, pretty high. And then what they did in, in the 2008 crisis and in the aftermath is they mostly recapitalized the banking system. So they created new base money out of, out of nowhere. Uh, they bought treasuries from banks, but then they also did, uh, combining with fiscal authorities, they did the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Uh, and so they basically you know, uh, helped the banking system be more solvent. But what they didn't do is uh, bail out homeowners for the most part. So there were minor uh, fiscal stimulus packages, what we'd call minor today. I mean, it was, it was several hundred billion dollars. Uh, but basically, there was – if you looked at, say, broad money supply, uh, 
you had a destruction in loans, right? So you had a contraction of money supply, but then you also had stimulus. Uh, and so if you look at broad money supply, it was, it was roughly flat uh, throughout that crisis. Basically, you wouldn't even know there's a crisis if you're looking at broad money supply. Uh, and uh, and so basically, there wasn't like a, a ton more money in people's bank accounts uh, chasing fewer goods and services. You had a, you had basically a, you know most people had less money. They, they they many people lost their homes. They had to you know contract spending. They, there was high unemployment. Uh, in this cycle, there were a couple things that were different. One is that the fiscal stimulus was much larger and quicker right off the bat, uh, and uh, and and banks went already went into this crisis well capitalized. They already had. Um, high amounts of, of reserves and treasuries as a percentage of their assets, uh, and so they they have other you know there might be other challenges out there, but they weren't in the same situation they were in 2008. And so the goal wasn't to just recapitalize the banking system and not everyone else. It was more of that broad base, you know, sending up yeah you know, like PPP loans to turn into grants, uh, you know, bailing out the airline industry, uh, sending checks to people, doing childcare tax credits. Everybody, you know, the majority of people had more money in their bank accounts, so broad money supply itself went up far more dramatically. It was the biggest spike we've seen since World War II when you had a similar inflationary effect, by the way. Um, and so this time it resulted in more money chasing you know, the same or fewer goods. Then you also add you know, supply chain issues, uh, you know, uh, lockdowns, things like that. And another big factor that almost no economists pay attention to is the natural resource cycle. If you look at you – know, uh, they always focus on the demand side. They don't really focus on the supply side. And commodities go through these kind of like 15-year capex cycles roughly where you have this period of oversupply. So you have super low commodity prices. Nobody wants to invest. Uh, and that's – you know they shouldn't be investing because it's just not – as you'd be destroying money. And over time, uh, demand keeps going up over time and then existing supplies get, get dwindled. You eventually get tighter commodity markets and then you get a, a price signal. You get higher prices and then it overshoots of course and then because you know, there's a lag time between how you can – bring more commodities online, money starts going into it, uh, and, and it kind of works itself out. And so during that whole decade after the global financial crisis, we were in a period of structural commodity oversupply for the most part. You had demand destruction, uh, and then you also had just you know China slowed down, so all these copper mines came online to you know during the whole emerging markets boom in the 2000s, and so suddenly we were kind of oversupplied on a global basis. Uh, and U.S. shale oil brought a lot of new oil to the oil market. And you know, destabilize that whole kind of supply demand uh, balance that OPEC was trying to maintain. Uh, and so we had this basically this period of oversupply, especially from the 2015 to like 2020 period. You just had oversupply of, of oil markets in particular. Um, and so, but that's a lot of that's worked out now. The combination of investors don't want to keep lighting their money on fire, so they're basically requesting more discipline from, say, uh, uh, shale oil producers. Uh, in addition, you have ESG mandates, things like that. So no, there's not a lot of excess capital going to energy capex anymore. It's been very low, and so now we find ourselves in a, a much tighter uh, natural resource market. So the combination of faster money supply growth and then all sorts of physical constraints on supply – uh, you know, give us a much more inflationary environment, I think, in this decade compared to the prior decade. I wonder, though, how much of that is really just monetary policy. I think uh, the, the real distortion here in commodity markets is that um, investors all over the world want to hold commodities as a hedge against inflation. And so um, a lot of investors will hold uh, industrial commodities on their balance sheet. So you can understand the the... the you can understand the case for gold. You could maybe, at a stretch, make a case for silver as a monetary commodity, although 
I would disagree strongly and say it's, it's an industrial commodity. Um, it's the original shitcoin that's been demonetizing for 150 years. But, you know, unless you're involved in copper or zinc or platinum, there's really no case for holding any of these industrial metals. They're purely industrial metals. I think in, in a normal market, I don't see that uh, you know normal people would be holding these as part of their uh, well. Well, when I say normal, I mean uh, one with a hard money. If we had a decent hard money that people could hold as a store of value for the long term, um, I don't see why they would want to hold these industrial uh, metals. And so I think the market for these is maybe heavily distorted by um, the excess monetary demand for all of these otherwise industrial metals that should be held, um, that should only be held by people who, who who have industrial uses for them and would not, you know, yeah, you can imagine there would be uh, experts uh, using them, uh, you know, experts who follow the market, trading the market in order to benefit from uh, supply constraints. And that's how the market functions smoothly because people make guesses and then the ones that make good guesses do so by moving essentially the metal from a place where it belongs to a place where it doesn't but holding it as a store of value you know uh, just putting a bunch of a metal metal on your balance sheet is likely very distortive of the markets for those metals so when you say commodity cycle do you think that that's a um that's uh, something that's part of the nature of physical resources, or would you say that's likely an example of uh, monetary manipulation and fiat uh, disease? I think a little bit of both, because I think that there, commodity uh, industry is a very tough business, uh, and it's because it's one of the few industries where you can't really control the price of your own product, um, and because it's, you know you don't really have differentiation compared to competitors, and so it's it's somewhat inherently more subject to volatility than other industries. Uh, but then speculators do kind of amplify the tops and the bottoms uh, of that market compared to what it otherwise would be, especially in a say a sound money environment. Um, but if you but if you look at the current environment with energy, for example, uh, you know energy's got a very low stock to flow ratio. There, there's not a lot. There's not many uh, months worth of storage uh, around. And so part of the energy shortage we've been seeing is that, for example. Uh, natural gas storage in, in Europe and Russia uh, has been relatively low. We're also seeing uh, drawdowns in oil inventories in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and so, the the for example, the shortages that we're seeing in the energy markets are uh, mostly not driven by speculators. It's really about the consumption versus the production. Basically, production's kind of flat compared to pre-pandemic. If you know, in some places down. So, for example, U.S. production never got back as high, uh, and it really shouldn't have because some of that was you know, a lot of that production only came online because of those easy money policies. Uh, basically, the combination of super low interest rates allowed and a kind of continual investment by pension funds into those things. That's where I, I think the manipulation was more prevalent. So that whole decade, part of ironically why you had disinflation was you had a lot of malinvestment kind of just going into the oil patch, uh, basically lighting itself on fire, but, but you know, providing a good amount of oil. Uh, most of those companies were free cash flow negative throughout that whole cycle. Uh, and then, so that started to change around 2018, 2019, but then they got hit by, you know, the whole, the whole lockdown pandemic, things like that. So then they got slammed in 2020. They kind of doubled down on being very conservative with their capex. And so now we're in an environment that's more normalized 
where you actually have kind of a, a tighter supply-demand balance. And so I think a lot of people, they, they kind of have recency bias, and they look back over the past decade, and they say, oh, look how, look how disinflationary everything is. Uh, we have all the commodities we need. Uh, you know, uh, US, U.S. is like energy independent. Um, but a lot, some of that was artificial. And so now going forward, uh, I think we're in a structurally more challenging environment for energy. Some of it's self-imposed, and some of it, I think, is the natural cycle that that, that industry goes through. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's your analysis of the energy uh, crisis is, uh, is, is, is arguably spot on. Um, and, and I think um, another factor involved there is obviously all of these uh, insane regulations that are being brought to bear on the oil industry. Um, so apparently people think that the carbon dioxide is boiling the oceans literally as we speak. And so therefore we're going to <laughs> reverse industrialization in order to get rid of, um, you know, increasing a natural gas in the atmosphere by tiny, 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 tiny fractional amounts. Um, but <laughs> moving back to the, uh, fed issue, do you see them actually going ahead with this? I mean, okay, so the inflation is higher with a broad money supply growth is much faster. Um, but can they taper? Because um, it's, I mean, this is really the dilemma of uh, the credit cycle. And um, Hayek has a great book called um, A Tiger by the Tail. And he says inflation is like uh, holding on to the t- tail of a tiger. Um, once you've done it, you know, once you've decided to take the foolish uh, step of holding the tail of a tiger with both of your hands, there are no, <laughs> there are no good ways out. There's no, you know, the, the only smart thing to do is to just not hold the tiger by the tail. Um, and once you've done it, you know, you're faced with the option of just holding on to the tiger so that the tiger keeps running, trying to escape, uh, trying to get you off of them. And, you know, it's a tiger, so it's going to have a lot of energy to run around and to flail you about and knock you around. Or you could let go, at which point the tiger is going to stop running around and turn to you and eat you and have you for dinner. So 
um, I think we've, you know, we see this happening. And, and if you look at the history of the Federal Reserve, you see this happening really from Greenspan. You know, of course, it happened in the 1970s. And then they managed to get it sort of under control in the early 80s with Volcker. But then Greenspan started in 1987, start, uh, or a little bit earlier, Greenspan's expansionary monetary policy started, and it's like an addiction. You know, you think, all right, let me just hold on to their tail a little bit. It feels so nice to um, try it. And then you just keep getting tempted, and you do it more and more and more. And now, um, you know, could we be at the point where the tail, uh, where the tiger is in full um, is that's it it's it's coming to an end are they going to let go or are they going to um you know witness the are, are they going to let the horrific kind of credit market crashes happen either we're going to see interest rates rise are we going to see all of these defaults are we going to see a massive inflation or um, sorry massive uh, recession or will they just uh, continue to try and push their luck with more and more inflation what do you think I think they're going to err on the side of pushing their luck with more inflation. Um, so I don't know exactly how far they're going to get with tapering, but I'm going to take the under uh, for the most part. And I think that, you know, especially with the declining PMIs and basically overall deceleration, um, I, I think that basically they're they're overshooting their, you know, their expectations somewhat. And there's a couple, you know, it's more like I think there are certain markets to look at. So a lot of people say, you know, the Fed will never let stocks crash, but there's there's far more uh, sensitive things they look at more than stocks. And so, for example, during the during the quarter four 2018, uh, you know, kind of uh, downturn in markets, Powell had his famous Powell pivot where they were talking about, you know, their tightening policy was on autopilot. And then by the time you got to January 2019, he's like, just kidding, we're going to be data dependent, uh, relax, guys, because you had everything crashing. A lot of people said, hey, look, look it, it took a 20% downturn in the S&P 500 to make him change his tune. But the bigger thing under the surface, that was like the part of the iceberg over the surface. The, the iceberg under the surface was credit markets. So during that, that there was like a six-week period where credit markets froze. No junk bonds were issued for like six weeks. Um, and, and that's a, a much more severe problem for markets than just the S&P 500 going down 20%. Uh, and so that's, that's the type of thing that makes them pivot. Uh, and so you know, just stocks going down 10, 20, 30%, Bitcoin going down all coins getting killed, you know, the, these things are not going to make the Fed pivot on a dime. It's watching credit markets. Uh, and then it's also watching if the treasure market becomes illiquid like it did in March 2020. So th those are the kind of the bigger pieces of the iceberg that would kind of force them to shift. In addition, if you started to see yield curve inversion, if you started to see uh, actual recession risks rather than just deceleration risks, those are things that would uh, likely lead the Fed to pull back, even if inflation is still above their 2% target. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's been a while since they've had to choose between inflation, uh, at least the way they measure it, uh, and uh, employment. So. You know, normally they're they're bouncing back between their two algorithmic mandates. Uh, you know, basically uh, uh, trying to maximize employment, trying to keep inflation, uh, you know, near their target, uh, and usually choosing one or the other. Back in the '70s, they had but both were problematic, uh, and so Volcker chose uh, to uh, kill employment uh, to try to stabilize the dollar. And I think now, and the difference was that they had a lot of problems back then, but they had low debt to GDP. Partially because they they had already been flooding it away, you know, throughout the 40s and then and then throughout part of the 70s, and so they had low debt to GDP, and so they could they could jack interest rates pretty high without causing widespread insolvency. It causes a severe recession, 
it didn't cause like a depression. Uh, whereas here, because you have so much debt in the system, uh, they I think they're going to err on the side of of you know letting inflation run over the two percent target uh, and trying to jawbone it back down, trying to manage it around the margins, but still letting it run hot. And that's essentially what they did back in the '40s, which is the only other time federal debt to GDP was as high as it was now. I mean, we had we had these big inflationary spikes. You had price and wage controls, and they just held rates at zero for like you know that entire decade uh, because they you know they basically recognized insolvency. Uh, and so I think that's that's the framework going forward, but it's not necessarily a straight line. And so I think they're going to try to slowly tighten here uh, until they get some of these signals that say you abs- you, you're stuck, basically, because kind of their third mandate is financial stability. So if the repo market breaks, if the treasury market breaks, if credit markets break, they're kind of forced back in to reliquify whatever market that was. And so that, that's kind of how I'm monitoring it. Yeah, I I tend to agree. And we had a similar uh, answer from uh, Parker Lewis, whom we spoke to last week. I think um, what it really comes down to is that the political forces that are going to push for inflation are infinitely more powerful than the political forces that are going to push against it. So, um, you know, the, the, in, if you get inflation, it's going to be good for borrowers. It's going to be for good for the biggest borrowers in particular. And so uh, the U.S. government, the largest corporations, they're all going to want to keep continuing pushing for more of the addiction, essentially, that continues to uh, um, that, that continues to require, you know, more and more money in order to keep the uh, in order to keep the house of cards standing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they can they can still play around with um, CPI numbers. I mean, they've been playing around with CPI numbers since the 1970s. Uh, prices of things just keep going up, and um, it's quite astonishing to see how people just normalize the idea that you know things prices go up because of reasons um, and all of this money supply <laughs> is irrelevant to it you know prices only ever go in one direction and the money supply ever goes in one direction but we've had 50 years of um, fiat economists staring us straight in the eye and telling us no well actually correlation is not causation and the money supply does not cause uh, prices to increase but it's becoming clearer and clearer that it is the case. But uh, yeah, it, it can still be hidden for a very large number of people. And I think, um, you know, when you consider, as you said, it's really the credit markets, I think, is the major one. If you think about the kind of insolvencies, insolvencies that would be um, brought about by increases in the interest rate, I think that's, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's going to look like 2008 if they hadn't intervened. And so... They didn't go through all of the things that they did. They didn't print all those trillions. You know, they didn't introduce the word trillion into the lexicon in 2008 in order to um, just go and give up on it all right now, you know. So uh, they're just going to have to uh, play around with the CPI as they always do. And I think really um, when you tie this together with all of the central bank digital currency uh, talk plus all of the climate hysteria talk, plus all of the pandemic hysteria, COVID hysteria talk, I think we see how these narratives um, are very, very conducive to propagating the inflationary narrative. You know, if you are the person's, if you're the person benefiting from inflation, you want to push the idea that 
you people need to stay home because of viruses and CO2 and climate. You know, we're soon likely going to be seeing things like uh, climate lockdowns. And we're already hearing noises about that kind of stuff. And um, I think we're, you know, we're hearing a lot of noises about raising taxes on meat and uh, subsidizing um, soy and uh, industrial uh, produced bugs and all of these kind of uh, inferior alternatives and more expensive uh, and cheaper alternatives. And I think that's really, that's the answer to the inflation problem. Uh, The answer to the inflation problem is not going to be responsible monetary policy. The answer to the inflation problem is you will own nothing, you will eat bugs, you will live in a tiny pod, you will not consume a lot of electricity and uh, energy to keep your house warm, you will own a tiny uh, souped up uh, golf cart that can only take you around 30 minutes away from your house when uh, your uh, CBDC uh, on your wallet is functional for the 30 minutes you're allowed to leave your house because of climate lockdowns. And uh, when you do manage to leave, you know, your CBDC will only work for those 30 minutes in your local grocery store where you can pick up your weekly rations of soy and bug burgers. I think that's a much more effective macroeconomic strategy for bringing down inflation than, you know, trying to do actually responsible monetary policy. I think you know, generally when you look at, say, the, the past two biggest inflationary decades in the United States, it was the 1940s and the 70s, and they did end up introducing various types of price and wage controls. That's something that they tend to resort to uh, in those types of environments. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see those, at least in targeted areas, uh, like some of the areas you mentioned, uh, being, being introduced in the 2020s as well. And of course, there's different jurisdictions around the world. So some countries uh, might go down that route, other countries might not. Uh, and so I do, I do think that's something to watch as we go forward. And the CPI basket, I mean, they, you know, they one of the changes they made to it was they took out the, the, the direct price of homes and they put in owner's equivalent rent, which is kind of a wonky metric. And another thing, what that does is, so for example, it takes it indirectly takes into account financing costs. Uh, and so, for example, if interest rates come down, uh, you are, and, and the home price goes up, your monthly payment can be roughly the same. And so they say, look, basically, inflation is not as high as it as it would be if you just incorporate house prices directly, just owning the asset outright. And so there are various substitutions they do in the CPI, I think, to suppress it. I've done some analysis to try to, you know, I know that there's. There's like these indicators that show what inflation would have been in other other ways of measuring it. Uh, and I've, I've kind of done some of my own analysis on just kind of sorting that out. One of the challenges is that if, you know, going back to something like, say, Jeff Booth's work, right? So the underlying technological process is deflationary. So, so prices should be going down for most goods and services. And so let's say you have 2% inflation. You don't really have 2% inflation. You know, you're not measuring from zero. You're measuring from some negative number that is – changing over time and it's hard to define. And that's also part of the reason why, so so I've done charts where, going back to the money supply thing, where I've charted broad money supply compared to CPI. Uh, and I use, five, I use five year rolling periods rather than one year rolling periods. Cause a lot, a lot of analysts like, do look, there's no one year correlation between them. And it's like, well, sure, because you know sometimes you're working with a lag uh, in terms of you know that money supply trickling it through the economy, and so it's a lot more clear when you look at five or ten year rolling periods that gives that time to to sort through. But even then, you see periods where sometimes you have a tighter correlation than others, and usually the periods we have less correlation, it's because you have some big boost in productivity. 
So, for example, in the United States in the late 1800s, you had abundant land. You you know spreading out. Obviously, you know uh, indigenous peoples uh, didn't benefit from that, but you had basically this this large expansion and this a big opening of natural resources. You had uh, discovery of oil throughout the United States. You had electricity. You had this big boom in technology and abundance. Uh, same thing in certain periods, like in Australia in the, in the 90s, uh, you know, the rise of Asia around it was a very kind of booming and abundant period for it. Globally, the whole world kind of benefited from China and, uh, you know, uh, uh, ex-Soviet Union countries kind of opening up over the past 30 years, kind of bringing all this fresh labor into the global market. Uh, and so you have these periods where you can get a temporarily decoupling from money supply and price increases because you've tapped into some sort of new abundance either technology or, or labor. Increase in productivity, basically. So more exactly. deflation. Yeah, exactly. And so people then have recency bias and they go back and say, look, I mean, we solved inflation. It's fine now. And then the problem is you you kind of run out of that extra, you know, you're, you're kind of drawing from a battery of extra productivity. And then you, if you continue with those monetary policies, then you start getting inflation, price inflation. And so that's why I think part of the reason the 2020s are going to be different than the 2010s, partly it's because the monetary policy itself is different. It's, it's broad money supply going up, not just base money. Uh, and then two, we're just in, in naturally a, a tighter regime here in terms of you know, our ability to tap into uh, uh, global labor uh, and the whole natural resource cycle that we're going through. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, I agree with that. And I think, you know, the uh, Jeff Booth makes it makes a great point that, uh, you know, productivity should be putting us negative on this kind of measure. So um, it, it it may work out nicely because you then get a three, only a 3% CPI, but you know, that's 2% um, and 5% or 3%, all these numbers are just in the aggregate and they hide the enormously destructive and redistributive impact of this tax. And it's the, the most regressive tax, really, because the people that are the most, uh, that benefit the most from inflation, ultimately, as I discuss in detail in my book, next book, my new book, The Fiat Standard, the people that benefit the most in a fiat system are the biggest borrowers. The biggest borrowers are the ones who have the biggest short positions on the dollar. And so as the fiat currency is declining in value, the bigger your short position, the more you benefit. And so who are the biggest borrowers? Well, it's the government and it's the big banks and it's the big corporations. Um, it's not the average Joe, you know, 50% of the population that's un unbanked is unable to benefit from the inflation regressive tax. They are the ones that are essentially paying it because they can only string together small little amounts of savings. So, um, one of the one of the tricky things there, just to touch on that point, if you look at say a uh, breakdown of different uh, wealth demographics, right? So the bottom fifty percent, like the next forty percent, the next nine percent, and then the top one percent, it's it's challenging because if you look at say debt to asset ratios, the lower you go, the higher debt they have relative to assets. So in some cases they are actually net borrowers compared to the top one percent. That is that is. Uh, you know, some of them in real estate are, are kind of net borrowers, but overall they have a, actually a higher asset to debt ratio. But the challenge is that not everybody has access to the same rates. And so, exactly. for example, in the bottom 50%, a lot of that's credit card debt. And if you look at credit card debt, they're not benefiting from, you know, that that's almost unchanged over decades. Uh, and so there's kind of a, it, it's not 
you know, people like to break it down in terms of, of income groups, but it's really about types. And so, for example, there are people right in the middle that are really benefiting from it. If you have a low fixed rate mortgage, you have a house, uh, you're, you're benefiting from that debasement. You might be working class, might be middle class. Um, then there are some other wealthy people that are maybe these older retirees that have a lot saved up in bonds and pensions, and they're, and they're you know, paid off their debt, and they're getting devalued. And so it's not, it doesn't cleanly break along income groups. It's really about what type of assets and what type of liabilities. And the big challenge is that, you know, even the people uh, near the bottom of the income ladder that, that actually do have higher liabilities to asset ratios are not fully benefiting from that in an inflationary environment because their interest rates are higher than, than the corporations and government and, and wealthy borrowers. Yeah, and uh, they pay a very high interest rate, which essentially negates that. And then I think the other thing is that there's, you know, the, the people um, below that are unable to access any credit. They are the unbanked, and so they they have zero credit. They only have uh, physical uh, cash as savings. And this might not be as common in a place like the U.S., but it is very common across the world. And I think the other thing to add to your point about um, and why the inflation is different right now, we could look at the previous 60 years, uh, 70 years from the end of World War II, you know, not only was the dollar supply growing, but also demand for the dollar was steadily growing. You know, the U.S. government was constantly finding a new stream of bag holders for their dollars from all over the planet. You know, by hook or crook, they managed to get a lot of dollars held in a lot of treasuries of governments, individuals, corporations all over the world. And that's only really been increasing so over, over the uh, 20th century because um, you know monetary economics is a winner-take-all phenomena. And so the, the nature of the system is that everybody wants to hold the dollar because the dollar is the most liquid. Um, now governments try and keep their own currency so they can maintain their seniorage. And then that causes all of these imbalances where all of these currencies are, you know, used to finance governments, but then used also to hold value. And ultimately, the winner in this game ends up being the dollar. Everybody wants to hold dollars. So first we had um, in the 70s, we had the U.S. Um, actively getting Japan and Germany to buy a lot of treasuries in order to, to uh, alleviate that. So that's an enormous amount of dollar demand going to these two major rising economies. In the 2000s, that shifted to the Chinese. So anytime a new large uh, economic power rises, they can only rise by buying up treasuries. They need demand for dollar. They buy dollars, they buy treasuries. The same happened in the Gulf. And, um, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union led all of these countries to go into the dollar system and start demanding more and more dollars. And then all of the hyperinflations that happens all over uh, that happen all over the world, uh, you know, before El Salvador went on Bitcoin, they went on the dollar because they had destroyed their uh, local currency with hyperinflation. And many countries have done that around the world. And, um, you know, we see dollarization happening in that case officially, but we also see dollarization happening unofficially in places like Turkey and Lebanon, where everybody wants to hold U.S. dollars in whichever way they can get it. So we've had an enormous amount of demand increase in the dollar. And I think this is likely to continue for a while, because if the dollar is not looking good and if the dollar is inflationary, spare a thought for other national currencies. Um, but... Perhaps what's different now is that there aren't any more big Chinas or Soviet Unions uh, to come and, you know, buy major bags. Everybody's bags are largely full of the U.S. dollar. So, yeah, Lebanon, Turkey, uh, Brazil. Yeah, I mean, there's still significant demand, but I think it's... Uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be as large as China, for instance. And uh, the U.S. now needs another couple of Chinas to come and do the heavy lifting to take over all of that inflation. Yeah, this is a that that's a really good point. It's a big theme that I've I've had in a couple of my articles and newsletters. Um, and if you go back to the the formation of the petrodollar system, so after the after they defaulted on the Bretton Woods system, when they shifted to the petrodollar system, is basically trying to replace gold at the center of the global system with treasuries, uh, and and they were they were rather successful with it for several decades. And what the the downside of that though is because although it benefited the dollar at expense of most other currencies except you know maybe the Swiss franc and a, and a couple others, but it, you know so it benefited the dollar. But the problem is that it forced the U.S. to run these structural t- trade deficits. It basically gave us a form of Dutch disease, which is something that that basically the economists pointed out a, a while ago. Dutch disease for people that aren't familiar with it. If if a country finds a natural resource, it sounds like great news, but then the problem is it it can basically kind of hollow out some of their other industries because they basically you know start to get say a trade surplus and it, and it, it strengthens their currency and it makes some of their other exports less competitive and so other people that you know might have been happy end up getting kind of you know it's something outside of their control throws them off and so generally what we see is that uh, you know when the United States kind of put the treasury at the center of the financial system it made everybody need dollars and treasuries uh, and so it kind of propped up the strength of our currency relative to our export competitiveness. So it increased our imports, de- you know, decreased our exports relative to each other. And so we started to get these gaping trade deficits, um, you know, starting there, but really we expanded them in the 90s. Uh, you know, we kept doubling down on that policy. Uh, and so you know, we've kind of hollowed out our industrial base compared to any, many other places. And so when Japan and, and, and Germany were buying treasuries, they were the ones running these giant uh, current account trade surpluses with us. Then it was the rise of China. So they were, they were you know, running these big dollar surpluses, using them to buy treasuries. That largely stopped around 2013, 2014. They decided, you know, they, they publicly declared that buying treasuries no, was no longer in their interest. And as you point out, there's no, there's no giant replacement for that. India's not really there yet. Uh, we're not seeing it out of Africa. There's there's no other big power coming up to buy those treasuries. But one thing that's kept the system going partially is over the past, say, five, six, seven years is that uh, foreign has been buying uh, U.S. equities. And so, for example, uh, even ones that don't have to, they just want they don't they don't want their they're basically just doing relative currency manipulation. So Switzerland, for example, they have a structural current account surplus. They don't want their currency to get too strong, so they they print currency and they buy Apple stock, for example. They buy foreign equities, mainly U.S. U.S. denominated equities, uh, and that kind of suppresses their currency and builds their reserves. And so, one thing we've been seeing is that large sovereign wealth funds, large uh, foreign pension funds, they've been piling into U.S. growth stocks. And the challenge now is that U.S. household equity allocations are as high as they've ever been as a percentage of their total assets. Uh, the foreign uh, sector is very much overweight U.S. equities. And so we are kind of scraping the barrel in terms of finding new buyers for U.S. assets. So U.S. treasuries, U.S. equities, uh, we are kind of – the world's kind of very heavy on one side of the ship there. It looks partially like it looked like after the 2000.com uh, era. Basically, the whole world was kind of piled into U.S. equities. Uh, and when they started to draw down those equities, you actually had a decline in the dollar, at least for several years, because everyone was kind of stuffed really heavily on one side. I think it's possible we could see a repeat of that, but it's something I'm monitoring. Yeah, um, I, I, I generally think I agree with you on this, although 
I don't. I, I have a. I have a bit of a problem with the term the Dutch disease because it's. Um, it sort of implies that there's something about natural resources that creates uh, that problem, but in reality, it's not a problem of the natural resources. It's a problem of the. Uh, it's a problem of the currency. If you had a sound monetary system, and everybody was on a gold standard then it's not an issue if uh, countries exporting a lot. All that that leads to is that people in that country end up with a lot of gold. Uh, this is not a very bad problem to have when gold is money, at least, not when it's uh, been demonetized into an industrial metal, perhaps. I agree. But, it's, all, it's only a problem in the current regime that we've been operating under. It's not a problem inherently. Yeah. So, and I don't think that, and and it's um, and and it's used to sort of signify the uh, to, to promote the idea that a strong currency is bad, and that Switzerland, you know, they have a major problem with their currency being bad. But I don't think that it is a bad thing uh, for Switzerland. I think it's a bad thing for the U.S. I think, you know, um, uh, one of my favorite books is called Gold Wars, and this was really influential in me writing uh, the Bitcoin Standard. I cited it in the Bitcoin Standard and in the Fiat Standard. And in that book, it explains the kind of pressure that was put on Switzerland in order to stop its currency from appreciating starting in the 1970s. Because once the U.S. dollar went off the gold exchange standard, so it was completely tethered from gold, uh, the Swiss franc was still pegged to gold. And so in that kind of world, and that's why in the 1970s, everybody wanted a Swiss bank account. Everybody in the world who had money, um, you didn't, you know, now people want dollars, but back then they wanted Swiss francs because Swiss francs were as good as gold. Um, they were backed by gold and they were redeemable by gold, whereas the dollar was not. And so I think this would have been a problem for the US, but not for Switzerland. You know, Switzerland, what, what could have happened is that Switzerland could have basically become the um, analog Bitcoin of the world in, in that kind of world. In the 1970s, uh, you know, if the Swiss had just continued to take money from the rest of the world who wants to send them their money to keep it in Switzerland with first day storage, all that the Swiss need to do is to take your a national fiat from whatever country you're in, sell it, buy gold, and stuff the gold in their massive vaults in their Swiss Alps. And um, eventually that just becomes the central bank of the planet. You know, if everybody's there, uh, everybody's gold is there while all the national currencies are collapsing, eventually people in the US will be trading with one another through using Swiss uh, bank accounts. It won't be a problem for Switzerland. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not going to kill the Swiss chocolate industry and the Swiss watch industry and the Swiss shoe industry. It's just going to make a lot of bankers in Switzerland a lot of, uh, very rich. And it's going to destroy the fiat uh, monetary system in all the rest of the countries, which I, I would argue is very good for all the rest of the world. Uh, <laughs> but it's bad for the people who benefit from that uh, fiat monetary system. Yeah, one of the one of the things basically, if we if we say I was an exporter and we all had the system, we priced our things in gold, right? So I, you know, my prices were listed in grams of gold, for example. If say the currency of my country strengthened compared to the euro, for example, um, I wouldn't have to worry about that uh, too much. Uh, whereas if I price it in dollars and the dollar gets a lot stronger relative to the euro, uh, then suddenly I'm less competitive than my Euro European peers, uh, unless I cut prices in dollar terms. But then the challenge is that if I have dollar-based liabilities, uh, it, it's more challenging. And so it's really that's what that's why I say it's it's kind of an issue of our current regime yeah. uh, more than more than just inherently. It's it's how we've structured it and how we've kind of segmented our currencies and how we have to match assets, revenues, liabilities, uh, while also worrying about foreign competitors. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's why in the Bitcoin standard, I liken this foreign exchange system to a Salvador Dali painting with all of the broken clocks. You know, you're trying to figure out what the time is and all the, these crazy clocks are around you. It's kind of like trying to perform economic calculation when you have, um, you know, assets and liabilities in uh, all kinds of and income streams in all kinds of different currencies as they're all shifting with one another. If only we had some kind of apolitical international money that could be sent across the internet uh, very quickly and nobody can control it and nobody can manipulate its price. But clearly that's too fanciful. Clearly Bitcoin doesn't fit the bill because, you know, economists at universities have told us, right? <laughs> I, I think it's, it's one of those things. I mean, obviously I, I, I like it a lot. It's, we're 13 years into it. Um, it's been highly successful. Uh, and it's volatile, and that's what drives a lot of people away. And then a lot of people just don't put the time into it. I mean, I, you know, when I first analyzed that, I thought it was neat, but I just didn't, you know, it, it, it took a couple cycles until I said, okay, I actually have to put hours into this and understand this thing. And I think we're just still early on that curve, even though we're, we're pretty, long, pretty far into this thing now. Yeah. So in your writing, when you talk about the um, Dutch disease for the U.S., you say that this is a system that causes 90% of Americans to lose. Uh, 90% of Americans lose from this. Uh, most people think of it, and I think particularly most Americans and, well, not just most Americans, I think most people all over the world think of this as being a kind of a chess grandmaster move by which the U.S. has uh, essentially subdued all of its um, international opposition. Give us the case against why is this bad for Americans? So I think basically we can separate, you know, America, the empire versus America, the domestic economy. Mm -hmm. And so that was arguably a very strong move for America, the empire. Uh, basically, it, it was a kind of a, a big chess piece in the Cold War, basically to kind of uh, uh, control the Middle East, uh, box Soviet Union out of it, uh, keep the uh, dollar in demand globally, basically use the the, the power of the Navy uh, to, to basically, you know, guarantee supply chains and kind of enforce, uh, uh, you know, dollar usage in the Middle East, which then, you know, if basically if, if Saudi Arabia and other OPEC nations only sell oil and dollars, regardless of who's buying, the, the implication is that every country in the world that needs to import oil needs need dollars. They have demand for dollars now. And so by using your military to you know, basically have, have control over certain parts of the world, make those deals, you've now entrenched your dollar. And so we, we basically became the country that could print money to buy oil, whereas the Soviet Union had to still dig it out of the ground. And this is this is something that analyst Luke Groman has analyzed and basically said that from, say, the 70s uh, into the late 80s, that system pro probably made a lot of sense. The challenge is that after the Soviet Union fell, um, it kind of over time became less useful. Uh, going forward from there, the United States was stuck with a system where our currency was artificially pegged higher because of the global demand for treasuries and dollars. And so that still extended America's hegemonic reach. We could sanction countries. Uh, we had our uh, expanded global reach, uh, but it mainly benefited corporations that could do arbitrage. It benefited politicians. But uh, the big losers from that system were American blue-collar workers, uh, industrialists, uh, people that actually wanted to make things. Basically, that, that Dutch disease which again doesn't doesn't have an intrinsic problem, but it does have a problem in this system. Made it so that those like U.S. producers uh, were less uh, competitive on the global scene, and so I think overall that contributed to higher wealth concentration and these other challenges that have you know mostly impacted Americans more so than say 
Europeans, Japanese, uh, and other uh, parts of the world. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think um, the analogy that I like to give is uh, it's similar to giving a teenager a credit card and telling them they can spend all the money they want and not have to worry about paying it back. I mean, it's obviously great uh, initially for that teenager, but um, you know, come back to that teenager uh, 10, 20 years later, even if the credit card is still working, um, arguably they would have been better off if they'd uh, spent uh, their time trying to learn how to make uh, money and how to understand money and how to be productive rather than just spending money. And I think um, it's, uh, in, 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 you know, in a sense, what this does is that in the US, the only profitable or the most profitable line of business is fiat uh, printing, basically, which is lending. So the financial industry is where the money is made in the US. And the rest of the countries is almost coasting on the enormous productivity improvements of the 20th century to be able to buy things from all over the world um, without, uh, you know, having to produce because we can just magically make alchemy, you know, fiat alchemy just allows the US to conjure goods that other countries need to work and sweat for. And um, in the long run, I think it's, um, it, it is destructive because, uh, you know, you can, you, even if you can continue to import, it's still, uh, you know, it, it's still very destructive to live in a culture where um, work is divorced from reward. I think this is really the, uh, the, the, the bad thing about it. a lot of people work really hard, but because of inflation and because of um, not being beneficiaries of the Cantillon effect, they can't get ahead and they can't save and they can't be secure. And a uh, few people that don't work very hard, um, uh, but have the right connections, manage to secure enormous amounts of wealth. And um, that's pretty destabilizing. And I I'd say dangerous, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not worth whatever teenagers, uh, toys, uh, that credit card allowed you to have, you'd have been better off, uh, slugging it out as a teenager, uh, as a broke teenager, like everybody else. Another, another factor is the net international investment position. And so for example, by running these structural trade deficits, which the petrodollar uh, basically kind of, uh, uh, forces to happen, at least in the current structure, these other countries, you know, we, people can phrase it as we send them pieces of paper, we get real goods and services. So it sounds like we're winning. But then the next step is they take those pieces of paper and they used to buy treasuries with them, right? So they used to buy our, our other, other pieces of paper. But uh, as I said before, they, they, they've since transitioned into ec buying equities. You know, they also buy real estate, uh, they buy land. And so basically what happens is they, they own, we, we're basically trading our appreciating assets, shares of our company, shares of our real estate, shares of our land for consumer goods. Uh, and so as long as we continue that trend, our net international position goes down, meaning that the foreign sector owns a larger percentage of our assets than we own of their assets. And so if you go back to the United States, uh, you know, 100 years ago, we were the biggest creditor nation in the world. You know, during the Bretton Woods system, we were, we were a creditor nation. Uh, whereas you know, once we started the petrodollar system, and then ran that for several decades, the line literally, you know, we, we were kind of like flat for a while. Then it just took a nosedive over the past 25 years in particular, ever since the 90s. And a lot of that's just because we're running these huge trade deficits. And then those, all those foreign cash flows are coming back into our capital markets. And so foreigners own a larger percentage of U.S. stocks. Uh, they own a larger percentage of, of say, even single family homes and, and other types of, of real estate, land. Uh, compared to what Americans own of their assets. And so the longer that structure stays in place, 
that international investment position will, will keep deteriorating. And the only way for that to reverse is either for foreign assets to start doing way better than, than American assets, uh, so it just changes the valuation, or uh, if that eventually, you know, basically if we get one of those reversals where the dollar weakens, uh, then basically some export capacity can come back, but that, that brings a whole other host of challenges. And so I think the only way to kind of get out of that situation is to go through a rather rough period of time. And we've kind of put ourselves into that over decades. Yep. It's time to face the tiger. There's just uh, no escaping the reckoning of the tiger. I mean, there is escaping it if you manage to die um, before your children have to deal with the tiger. Um, and that's, in a sense, this is kind of the, 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 the agonizing thing, like I think for um, particularly Americans, uh, you know, the, the, the generation, the post-war generation, the boomers were the ones who benefited enormously from the system. Um, and uh, they're... Um, Many of them are not going to be around to witness its uh, demise or to pay for its demise. But it seems, I mean, yeah, you're you're, you're absolutely correct on the investment issue. The, the, the U.S. went from top creditor to um, top borrower because ultimately what fiat does is capital consumption. People are consuming their capital. People are running through their capital and they're engaging in a massive consumption binge. And that has to come to an end. There's no fortune that is too big to be spent. It doesn't matter how much capital you have, doesn't matter how much money, how much fortune there is, you can spend it, you know, you can, you, you, you can always spend the fortune. And I think um, it's an enormous amount of capital that the US has squandered. Um, it looks great right now, because now we're at the party. Um, but it's not going to look so great when you have to face the bill for the party. Um, and when the party's over. And going back to your your analogy of the teenager, one of the one of the challenges is the whole like, you know, people say like that that phrase like you know, uh, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, uh, weak times make strong men. So the if you look at the manufacturing base in particular, to kind of give a tangible example to that, if you make if if you do currency manipulation and make your exports less competitive structurally for decades. Uh, then naturally, uh, you know, those industries flow out of your country and into other countries. They go to Mexico, they go to China, they go to Germany, Japan, wherever the case may be. They go to all these different countries. And if that system ever stops, if you, if you stop that engine turning and you want to turn it back, you've already kind of lost a lot of that expertise. You know, uh, people grow up and they think, why would I want to go into manufacturing? Why would I want to make things? I can just go to Wall Street. I can just go you know, I can just go to software, right? They, they, they pick a couple industries that are still flourishing uh, because they're, they're high margin. They're not based on, on, this, on this currency problem. And when you actually start facing, say, supply chain issues, or maybe you don't want your biggest competitor, you know, making your military equipment anymore, um, like in the case with, you know, China makes parts that the U.S. military uses, uh, you know, if you want to actually resource some of that, you, you've lost a lot of the expertise there. Um, because you, you, other countries have spent decades building up that knowledge base. And part of inno innovation comes from making things, right? So you can, you can innovate in other areas, but if you want to innovate in terms of, uh, you know, mechanical, electrical, uh, you know, hardware type things, it, it generally comes when you're closer to that manufacturing process. That's how innovation happens. And so if you go back to, you know, say during the early early phase of the whole kind of COVID thing, you could see China building hospitals in 11 days. Um, yeah, and, and the United States, basically, when we try to build a railroad in California, for example, uh, it's, it, you know, a decade later and you're, you know, 
you know, the, the budget estimates are like $100 billion and it just gets, we, we kind of lose ability through a combination of, of uh, regulatory hurdles and then just kind of know-how to build those things. And of course, there's still, there's very uh, competent, you know, uh, craftsmen and artisan. It's just, is how widespread that knowledge is in the country as a percentage of its, you know, population, as a percentage of its GDP. And so we've, we've kind of hollowed out our ability, uh, except for niche areas, to, to make things on the scale that say they can make in Germany, that they can make in China, that they can make in other countries. Yeah, I think if you look at uh, inflation across the U.S., one major factor um, that you find is that uh, things that can be imported, things that can be put on a boat and shipped to New York and L.A. are very cheap in the U.S. because you just keep buying those things with fake printed dollars. But things that need to be made domestically in the U.S. are very expensive by global standards. And not only are they very expensive, they're also quite inferior. So getting a haircut in the US can be extremely expensive and you're usually not getting your uh, the same bang for the buck that you would be getting in most other places around the world because most other places around the world you know if you're a uh, if you own a barber shop you need to wake up every morning and go and cut hair in order to eat basically at the end of the day um but in the U.S., you know, you get into the barbershop business and um, soon enough you got a credit line and then, you know, you start hiring immigrants and you're just rolling over debt and you're doing interest rate uh, arbitrage and you get credit and, you you know, you don't need to stay in that job as much because all of these financial opportunities exist because of cheap money that make it expensive to keep somebody just, uh, you know, doing their job as a barber. I mean, obviously I'm being overgeneral. Perhaps barber is the bad example here, but like infrastructure, I think is, is, is a great one. So, you know, the, the, the Empire State Building was built in under a year. Um, <laughs> I remember going to New York and, you know, they building, they're, they're renovating the staircase for a subway station and it's 18 months of disrupted service and walking through uh, construction sites, basically, in order to just renovate the staircase. It's it, it's quite remarkable how expensive those things are. So yes, regulation is a part of it, but another part of it is just that it's, it's really expensive and it's something that you can't get uh, shipped over from China. You can't just hire Chinese people in China to build you a subway staircase in New York City um, and, and ship it uh, on a ship. You have to hire people in America and that's that, that gets really, really expensive. That's where the inflation goes, you know. So, of course, CPI does not factor these things. You know, you look at the cost of building trains, building infrastructure. Um, the, these are like, you know, the, 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 these are the things that don't get included in the uh, CPI as much as cheap stuff that you can ship on a boat from China. And it's if you look at say how different investments do in in inflationary versus disinflationary regimes to tie tie to that point. So during during periods where this like inflation levels are pretty low, uh, uh, like say this this past decade, uh, you know basically there's not a lot of commodity scarcity. Uh, things are more kind of you know focused on on financialization. Businesses get rewarded for being asset light. Basically, if they can rent things that own things, uh, you know, take everything off their balance sheet, put it elsewhere, they benefit from that. Uh, but during inflationary periods, uh, when you start running into supply chain issues, that's where owning your own assets becomes more useful. That's where uh, being vertically integrated is more of, more of a feature. Uh, and the replacement costs for those assets start going up dramatically. Uh, and suddenly, you know, uh, you know, 
all these businesses that were trying to emphasize having high returns on invested capital, trying to be asset light as possible, you know, that are then very expensive because, you know, people have recency bias, you know, those things got bid up to such high levels. When you have a, rege a regime shift towards more scarcity, towards, you know, you, you change the money supply, so you change demand, uh, and then you run into demand constraints, you didn't, I mean, supply constraints you didn't know you had before, uh, all those assets become far more valuable to people because they are harder to build than people thought. They're harder to replace than people thought. And that's how sometimes you get these big growth to value stock uh, cycles, and that's where some of the expectations on inflation can be misplaced because they don't take into account the fact that, say, for 10 years, you can be kind of coasting on, on depreciating assets. You can you – know, things that you built 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago are still serving a useful purpose, and you're, like, you're saying, look how low inflation is, um, but it's because you're not having to rebuild and replace them. But over a long enough timeline, when you actually have to start building them and replacing them, it becomes more inflationary. And you know you realize that your all your monetary policy and all of your policies are kind of geared towards that more disinflationary environment that you thought was permanent. And, and so that that's that's the I think one of the challenges that policymakers are going to run into and that businesses are going to run into probably throughout this decade. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I agree entirely. Um, all right, well. Um, Unlike the vast majority of people who talk about markets, you have the um, remarkable distinction and courage to put up your portfolio on your website for everybody to see, which um, I think is admirable because you know you're, you're uh, putting your track record out there for people to look at. And I find it particularly admirable given the caliber of one of uh, your recent uh, um, internet fights. Now, for those who are not very familiar with Lynn, Lynn might be the um, perhaps the politest person on Twitter <laughs> ever. Um, it's it, it's it's almost impossible to find anything in her feed that is uh, anything that is not substantive. That is just not getting to the. Um, uh, to the root of the topic that she's talking about is dispassionate analysis always. And once she chose to um, look at the paper of a certain Nassim Nicholas Talib, who's notorious in these parts of the internet, um, and he'd written something about how, why Bitcoin is uh, going to die or something or the other. And she went through his paper and uh, basically uh, explained why it was a load of nonsense. And it was a load of nonsense. It's not worth uh, getting into the content of the paper because it really was just um, somebody starting with the conclusion of, all right, this is going to go to zero. How do I find a way to explain that this is going to go to zero? Um, but what I found remarkable is that, you know, Nassim Talib is somebody who's been writing about financial markets for um, decades now, and he has never shared his portfolio. He's never put up his portfolio and never um, shared a, a track record. But he's always out there looking for people who have had um, one bad quarter to go and savage them and attack them and explain how his ideas mean that you know he's correct, whereas those people are just completely clueless. But of course, those people are usually have their actual portfolios um, out there, you know. So he has the advantage of being the kind of uh, um, you know the, the 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 soccer fan who's sitting on his couch drinking a beer and saying you know I sh uh, if it was me I would have done uh, things in a different way uh, shouting at his TV watching the uh, players that are actually playing but you have your portfolio up and 
um, <laughs> he went after you for things other than that because I think uh, yeah, it would have uh, a comparison of portfolios would have probably <laughs> been extremely one-sided uh, for your uh, uh, in, in your favor. Um, so um, tell us what do you have in your portfolio and why do you hold so little Bitcoin and Bitcoin related companies in your portfolio? <laughs> Uh, so in that in that newsletter, uh, that's like a newsletter portfolio. So that's not that's not all my assets. That's like a specific uh, portfolio that I track for that newsletter. And the challenge with that platform is that you know they don't they don't have Bitcoin as a holding, and they don't even have GBTC because it trades over the counter. Okay. And so the only way to get exposure is with um, stocks like MicroStrategy or the miners. Uh, and so that general portfolio, what I try to do is I I do a spin on like the sixty forty portfolio. Where I say, okay, let's have a diversified asset base, but let's try to find better things than bonds to hold, uh, you know, with most of that. And so what I do is I have a section for, say, dividend stocks. I have a section for international stocks. I replace uh, some of the bonds with other types of assets, uh, and I do have a segment for digital uh, asset-related uh, companies, mostly mostly Bitcoin-focused companies, MicroStrategy and the miners. Um, but for example. In my research service, I have other portfolios that people can look into where I do use things like GBTC uh, because that's available on other platforms, obviously, just not that particular platform. And then also I recommend Bitcoin cold storage, right? So I, I you know, uh, I, I shared my readers back in, it was April 12th, I think, that I recommended, April 12th, 2020, that I recommended Bitcoin. And then I went and bought it on April 20th. So I, I, I buy most of mine, you know, originally I bought through an exchange, uh, but then I shifted over to Swan Bitcoin because uh, they were Bitcoin only, and I liked their their product offering. And so I kind of separate how I manage that particular portfolio from you know just total assets in general, kind of like how I wouldn't you know have my house listed in that portfolio, if, you know, real estate holdings, things like that. Uh, I, I consider Bitcoin best held as directly held property, and the best percentage I think varies depending on who it is, right? So I think I think for most people the answer is. You know, it shouldn't be zero Bitcoin and exactly how, how high of a percentage of Bitcoin they want to go partially depends on when they bought it uh, and how much it appreciated. Uh, uh, and as well as things like what is their level of knowledge? What is their volatility tolerance? Uh, what is what are their financial goals? And so, you know, that that's one of my portfolios among among several that I track for my clients. Oh, I see. OK. All right. So, um, you know, um, other than uh, Bitcoin, if somebody wanted to dabble in markets over the next uh, couple of years, um, I mean, I think in general, as a, as a little disclaimer, I think, um, you know, the appeal of Bitcoin for me is that if we had a world with Bitcoin similar to what we had with the gold standard, investment would be something that people would only do when they find a particularly useful good opportunity it would not be a second job it, most people would uh, focus on their own job and then they'll take their earnings and they'll put them in the gold coin or in the bitcoin and um you know it'll, they earn that money and they put it there and they st and it stays earned there it's, it's saved they don't have to go speculating on commodities and trying to understand japanese monetary policy and trying to figure out what the euro is going to do and what's going to happen between greece and germany in order for them to keep their savings so i think one of the appeals of bitcoin is that you know it it it, it would bring us back to that world. And I think I see this already with a lot of Bitcoiners where once you no longer have to worry because you are in Bitcoin for the long term and you trust that Bitcoin is going to do well in the long term, which it continues to do, you know, even with all of these crashes, it's still up many multiples over the last couple of years. Um, 
when you look at it this way, um, you know, you, you, you have the freedom not to trade. So I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not recommending that people go out there and uh, trade fiat markets. Um, only put in fiat what you can afford to lose. But, uh, if somebody wanted to, um, go and be, uh, reckless with uh, fiat markets, where do you see, um, a safe haven or an opportunity over the coming years, given all of these, uh, inflationary, stagnationary uh, headwinds coming at us? Uh, so generally, I find that the, that the natural resource space still has uh, reasonably attractive opportunities, uh, as well as generally some of the higher quality international value type seg- segments. So not, not the melting ice cubes, but the ones that actually uh, you know have basically future-proof businesses uh, that haven't really benefited from this huge increase in earnings multiples. Because as you pointed out, you know, for lack of – for basically, we – People monetize investments as money, uh, for lack of good money. And so, you know, in this environment where you know their bank accounts yielding zero, official CPI is running at seven percent. Um, even before this disinflationary period, I mean, even over the, the past decade that was disinflationary, if you look at at real T bill rates or real bank cash rates, uh, they were below zero for for the vast majority of the past decade. Uh, it was it was mildly below zero, but it was below zero, and so because that money situation's been so weak, there's been a natural tendency to just stuff as much capital as you can into equity markets, in particular, uh, also second homes and, and trophy assets and things like that. But for the for a lot of people, it's it's equity markets, and even for for a lot of foreign investors, it's it's, it's U.S. growth equity markets. And so if you look at valuations over time, so much so much capital has been shoved into them that now you can have much lower forward expected returns, uh, even from good companies, uh, just because their multiples are so high. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the things I find is, is looking for equities that have not already been monetized, right? So that don't seem to have a monetary premium on top of their cash flow generation potential. And so there are certain value-oriented sectors in the United States. I think, for example, energy infrastructure. You know, we went back before about the, the, the replacement cost, right? In an inflationary environment, having a very asset-heavy business can be useful because you have assets that are much harder to produce now than they were when those were built. And so I, I for example, like some of the energy infrastructure in the United States and Canada. And when I look internationally, uh, you know, there there are kind of you know healthcare stocks. There are kind of I think more value oriented type of plays. Some commodity resources uh, that I like. And, but I agree with you. In a perfect world, uh, you know, most people shouldn't have to focus on investments uh, in order to uh, you know make money in a relatively stable way. Right now, the challenge is that cash itself uh, loses value uh, generally slowly, sometimes quickly, depending on where you live. Um, and then you have harder monies you can choose. So, so gold's one of them. Uh, but uh, you know, there's a, it has now a new risk to Bitcoin. Uh, and there's Bitcoin, but it, because it's so volatile, a lot of people can't afford to put all their money in it, uh, or even half their money in it. They they put a certain percentage into it. You know, it's different for someone who put say a thousand hours of research into it, super high conviction, uh, bought it. You know, five years ago. Uh, you know, they can hold a higher allocation, whereas for a lot of people, uh, you know, some, some, some percentage I think is appropriate for them. And so the challenge is trying to navigate this environment and saying, okay, we're watching Bitcoin monetize in real time, uh, but maybe you don't want to be 100% in Bitcoin. And so I, I, I go around and kind of find all these different assets uh, that I think are 
likely to hold their value through, say, currency weakness, through currency transitions, uh, through inflationary environments, uh, and that also can survive periods of disinflation. So when the Fed tries to tighten policy and tries to kind of slow some of that down, you know, going back to the earlier point of like the most indebted are the ones that win, you know, that's true as long as you're it's almost like you want to be second place. You want to be as indebted as you can, but you don't want to be the most indebted because the most indebted uh, are the ones that you know fall first, right? So in a liquidity crisis, you don't want to be the one that's over your skis. You want to be the one that's you know leaning in, but still able to navigate and kind of round the turn and get down to the bottom of the of the ski slope. And so I look for businesses that are benefiting from inflation, but that are also say conservatively leveraged. That they're not you know they're not the most leveraged ones in the industry that might blow up along the way. And so that that's how I generally try to find assets in this environment. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably uh, wise. All right. Um, well, um, one thing that I've noticed in your portfolio is that you have silver. So I'm going to go on ahead and pick a fight with you about silver. So I, uh, I I think silver is a shit coin. I think it's been uh, getting demonetized for 151 years now. Since, as I mentioned in the Bitcoin standard, since 1870, when um, Germany won the Franco-Prussian War, they asked for their indemnity from France in gold. And so they got a big chunk of gold from France and then they used that to go on a gold standard. So they sold, they, they were on a silver standard and they were the biggest economy in the world that was on the silver standard left at that point. Um, Britain, uh, the uh, US and um, France were on gold as well as Switzerland, Holland and a few others. So some of the, some, most of the major economies of the world were on gold. Um, Germany and a few others were on silver, but um, gold was going up in value and Germany was going and um, silver was going down in value. So Germany decided to switch from gold to silver in 1871. And since then, you know, at that point, the, the gold to silver ratio, well, the ratio of uh, the price ratio between the two was about uh, 13 or 14 to one. So one ounce of gold could buy you 14 ounces of silver. Today, I don't remember what the exact ratio is, but it's in the 80s or 90s or around 100 or something like that is the ratio between them. So it's been a long, uh, interminable decline in the value of silver compared to gold. And I think, um, you know, silver bugs don't like to uh, say this because they, um, you know, they, they still like to think of silver as money. But I think it's completely lost its role as money in any realistic sense because, um uh, you know, first of all, it's losing value compared to it was losing value compared to gold for 150 years, and now you know gold is not even uh, keeping up, so losing value, um, it's losing value even more than gold over time. And uh, you know, uh, as it begins to, as it loses value, and as it stops being stacked in monetary uh, quantities, um, and it starts going toward industry. What happens is that the stock to flow of the metal declines because now the stockpile, you know, it, with the monetary metal, uh, like gold, if we just used gold for uh, money and we didn't use it for any industrial uses, then we dig up gold from the ground. It is part of the flow of new gold and it goes into the stockpile of gold. So every year we're adding to the stockpile, but nothing gets taken out of the stockpile. That's what made gold uh, such good money because the stockpile rose so fast and its flow uh, even as it rises, continues to stay very small compared to the uh, overall stockpile because the stockpiles are constant. They're not consumed. That's the key thing. You don't consume gold. That's what made it money. 
but silver is being consumed. And so when it gets used in an electronics device or when it gets used in some industrial machinery, it's effectively like going and digging it back into the ground. It's taking it out of the stockpile. And so moving the stock, the stock to flow begins to decline because the stockpile declines and the stockpile is um, in the uh, numerator. And so um, as it declines, it stops being a monetary metal and then it starts becoming less and less valuable. And so then more and more people sell it. And I think the end point right now is that, you know, if you wanted to buy $1,000 worth of silver, it needs real room, you know, it's a, you're, you're paying rent on that thing, whatever you're going to be keeping it. And uh, it's, I think it's been, it's been losing its monetary role. So um, what is your rationale for using silver? Uh, so generally, I agree with what you said. It, over the long term, it's lost its monetary premium. Uh, basically, it did have a pretty, uh, pretty tight range for gold to silver ratio for literally you know thousands of years, uh, and then you know, more, you know in more recent centuries, it's 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 you know gone to a structurally lower ratio. Generally, throughout the 2020s decade, I expect most commodities to do pretty well compared to the dollar. Uh, it won't be a straight line, but I expect probably gold, silver, platinum, uh, uh, oil, gas, copper. Uh, nickel uh, to do pretty well against the dollar. And so currently my approach is to have a rather diversified commodity exposure as part of a portfolio. Um, I think, I think you know, Bitcoin will outperform, uh, you know, all the commodities. Um, if you look over the long term, going back to the, the negative inflation thing I mentioned before, where, where, you know, inflation is not really measured from zero, it's measured from some negative number. The, the one commodity that, that so far uh, at least pre-Bitcoin has held its monetary premium as gold. So if you if you track gold versus just about any other asset, gold has outperformed. It's outperformed like you know the average house. It's outperformed copper. Uh, it's outperformed silver. It's outperformed oil. Generally, you have these kind of sine waves where you have these commodities go up and down in price with the natural resource cycle. But for most of them, they have a kind of a downward sloping sine wave as priced in gold because gold's the one asset that was able to, to maintain a high stock to flow ratio. Um, over the past decade, gold was flat, but gold has done that before. It's gone through these periods of time where it, it gets way over its skis, it goes way up too quickly, and then it kind of becomes out of favor for a decade or two. And so, for example, in the, in the say, the late 90s, all the way up to that 2011, 2012 peak, gold went up something like 5x. It, it basically massively outperformed the S&P 500, became a bubble. Uh, and then as we entered a more disinflationary decade uh, and, and you know, the, money, the, the broad money supply was not going up as quickly as people expected it to because they were, they were focused more on the monetary base. You had this period of gold chopping you know, down to sideways for a long time, building up a big base. Um, and I think that you say absent of Bitcoin, uh, I think the 2020s decade would probably be a remarkable one for gold uh, compared to risk assets in general. Um, the introduction of, of Bitcoin and now the fact that Bitcoin is becoming large enough to be a macro asset obviously challenges that. Um, and so I, I think that overall, Bitcoin is the better investment than gold. And, and, and I think in the long run, gold is probably a better investment than silver. Um, but, uh, you know, given the, the I think the, the, the volatility of, of kind of navigating this period, uh, at least for people that do want that diversified portfolio, I don't think silver is a necessity. Like silver is kind of a couple, you know, a few percentage points in my portfolio. But I'm generally bullish on a broad array of commodities, uh, you know, mostly for the industrial use over the next decade, because I think the replacement cost of those mines are going to go up substantially. 
Uh, and I think basically this, this ongoing period of currency devaluation is generally going to benefit hard assets in general. And commodities are one of the few areas that most of them don't really have a monetary premium at the moment. Uh, and so I think going forward, a lot of them are, are pretty attractive. Um, but you know, I, th I don't think they're necessary to have as part of a portfolio. But I think if if someone is trying to have that diversified approach, I think, you know, I, I have kind of a scattershot bullish view on on commodities in general. Yeah, it's 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 another way of shorting the dollar, I guess. Yeah, basically. Basically, yeah. yeah. All right, um, Stefano, do you have a question? Yes, thank you, Saif, and thank you, Lean, for the very interesting conversation. So my question is is the following. Um, I would say that trust in, in most institutions, it's very low, probably the lowest, certainly in my lifetime. Um, you know, we kind of expect that from Congress, but it's becoming apparent that this extends way beyond Congress. You can look at the courts, you can look even at public health officials, which seem to care more about politics than public health. So when it comes to the Fed, um, do you think that the Fed is an institution that we can still trust um, or not? What, what, what are your opinions on that? Well, so the short answer is no. Um, their biggest scandal recently was the trading, right? So I don't know if you okay. followed it, but basically yeah, a lot of – for people that haven't that are looking at this, uh, a lot of Fed officials were found out to have, have actively traded their own portfolios uh, while dictating monetary policy. Uh, yeah. And so you know, even, even without that, um, I think the institution uh, is, is obviously challenged for trust issues, uh, uh, but now that even brings ethics into it, right? Mm -hmm. So you could, you could be ethically, say, pure – and still have a bad mission, but then if you're also ethically compromised, it, you know it, it's a whole other uh, uh, type of level uh, that mm. that's it, this impact. And so I think, for you know, I think the fourth turning is a good book on this whole subject. But basically, every every few generations, we kind of uh, our institutions become stagnant uh, and uh, basically just be, become so corrupted uh, that they end up getting torn down and rebuilt. Uh, and we go through these 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 big generational cycles with it. And generally, you know, when it comes to say cycle analysis, I'm not I'm not a huge fan because I I just am more quantitative in how I view things. But one thing I like about the fourth turning concept is that when I look at the long term debt cycle, so when I look at 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 debt cycles through history, they're different than the normal business cycle. So things more like 2008 or 1929, these these kind of big gigantic sine waves of of structural generational debt accumulation. Um, the big debt peaks all match up with the fourth turning uh, uh, cycles. And so that's kind of, for me, the quantitative backbone for, that kind of helps show some of the things that are happening during those periods. We have these, these big gyrations uh, in terms of power structures and policy shifts and things like that. And so the fact that we're in another fourth turning now, I think, is, is pretty unmistakable. You have rising mm -hmm. populism around the world pushing back on existing institutions. Uh, and I think the Fed is just one of many institutions uh, uh, that are kind of being questioned in a way that they weren't for, for much of the prior decades. And really this past 10 years or so um, uh, really, you know, started to become to the forefront. So, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, most people barely knew what the Federal Reserve did, uh, probably couldn't have named the chairman of the Fed. Uh, and now it's just more on the minds of the public, uh, in part because it's been more influential in terms of, you know, managing asset prices, but also because it's part of this whole distrust uh, that people have, have gained, uh, mostly rightfully so, I think, against mm -hmm. institutions around the world. Thank you, Lynn. Appreciate it. Good afternoon. Um, thank you. Um, I, I just had a question for you. I'd like to know what your views are, Lynn, on um, the long-term view on decentralized finance 
and how you see Bitcoin as playing into decentralized finance uh, and how it, uh, in, in ways that it would be used, uh, how it would be used otherwise besides for facilitating payments and for being held as a store of value. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I've been critical on on DeFi in the sense that you know a lot of it is decentralization theater. So it's protocols that are not really decentralized that are uh, kind of acting decentralized. Uh, and so I've been skeptical on most of those technologies. Um, but you know, I think there's a seed of usefulness in some of them. And and so for example, we're starting to see DeFi built on Bitcoin with things like Sovereign. I don't know if that project in particular will work out in the long run. I mean, they, they basically looked at some of the things that were happening on Ethereum and said, what if we do this on, on a stronger foundation? Um, you know, generally, it's, it, it's better for Bitcoin uh, if there are more decentralized access points to it, right? So a lot of people buy on centralized hubs, uh, and then they can, they can take them off uh, and basically trade them peer-to-peer. Um, and any, any services that, that make it easier for people to access uh, Bitcoin uh, in a more decentralized way, I think it's healthy, right? So, but the thing is, a lot of the DeFi stuff is based on kind of altcoin trading, casino type of speculative behavior, whereas a lot of the decentralization in, in Bitcoin over time has been, you know, people using Telegram to, to orchestrate buys and sells, people using, uh, you know, um, uh, escrow type of, of, of ways to transfer value. Uh, and so we've seen kind of decentralized aspects that are not these actual DeFi exchanges, things like that. They're less token-based. Um, and so I don't, I don't rule out the introduction of token-based ones on Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's something I'm watching over time. I think long-term, the Bitcoin network can be used for more things than just transferring Bitcoin. Uh, one of the things that Taproot enables is that Lightning uh, will now eventually, once developers kind of keep working on it, be able to transfer other types of tokens, right? So kind of like how we see on Liquid right now, the Liquid network, you can have other types of assets that trade on Liquid, and Liquid trade is is, is built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, they can do similar things with the Lightning network, um, and so you could have, say, very very cheap stablecoin transfers uh, through Lightning over time. Uh, you could have other types of of assets. And I don't know if that's going to catch on because the Bitcoin community is less focused on different types of tokens and things like that. Um, I do think that would be useful for stable coins uh, in this current period of time because there is a demand for stable coins because people want you know harder currencies than their local currencies, uh, maybe without having the volatility of Bitcoin or at least for part of their assets. And so I, I am generally bullish on the proliferation of stable coins and generally – you know, they, they were introduced on Bitcoin, they navigated towards Ethereum, then they navigated towards cheaper chains because they, that whole industry kind of uh, is, is, you know, it kind, of na- it kind of navigates towards more centralization and lower fees. Um, and so it would be, I think, healthy to see stablecoins come back to Bitcoin if Lightning made it super cheap for them to move around. Um, I'm kind of going to wait and see how that works out. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the Lightning devs. Um, so it, it's something I'm optimistic about, but uh, you know I don't think Bitcoin needs it. Uh, but I think some of those technologies can benefit from from Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, controversial one on carbon, um, particularly in the EU. We've got a, an environment where they're beginning to regulate the ability to consume carbon, uh, particularly for energy companies. But they're also introducing um, the sort of carbon border adjustment mechanism, which will mean that if you don't have the requisite amount of carbon, you'll have to buy it 
in 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 the in the market. Um, but the price of carbon has been quite quite volatile. In some respects, it it it, it is becoming an asset class in its own right, where it has a restricted supply, which is um, maybe sort of monitored and restricted by governments. Um, and obviously, with the, the various uh, regulations such as carbon order adjustment mechanisms coming in, um, there will be uh, you know, increasing demand. But I wonder whether you think that is potentially, one, an asset class, and two, what impact that might have on inflation? So I, I do. So over the past year, I've tracked the European carbon carbon market to some extent because there's some analysts kind of pointing out that the way it was designed it was inevitably going to be a bubble um, and so that's something I've, I've tracked but that I've not gone as deeply into as as some of those analysts have specialized on that um, I generally do think it's going to be a larger asset class for a while um, at least you know until it causes enough problems that they might uh, move away from it um, uh, but basically we see Europe doing it we even see China kind of moving towards pricing carbon um, and so I do think that it's going to be in some ways like an artificial commodity where it's a, it's something you can buy and sell um, and that that market exists because of, of various mandates or restrictions on how much can be emitted or what you get paid for uh, taking it. And so I, I think that is probably going to be a big market going forward. Um, and it's, you know, I think one of the challenges that I think policymakers have done is they they you know they focus so much of their environmental concerns on one variable carbon emissions, whereas there's you know there's all sorts of other pollutants there's there's you know mercury in the oceans petrochemicals getting out there right but it's 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 kind of this this like myopic focus on just carbon emissions and then they don't even necessarily focus on long term things that can sequester carbon like say uh, high quality farming for example right mm -hmm. so like uh, permacultures. Uh, grazing lands, you know, there's more carbon in the soil than the atmosphere, uh, but it's everything's kind of focused on that one side of it, just the admission side. And so, you know, I don't think that that market is well constructed, but I think that market's probably going to get bigger uh, through this decade. Hi, this has been a great conversation, both of you. Um, I wanted to know, Lynn, if there's anything on the fiscal side that uh, you've been paying attention to or could see coming this year. Um, with it being Fed trying to tighten during an election year and considering that Congress missed their huge spending bill they were trying to pass at the end of last year. And if unemployment's gonna start rising during the tightening, are we gonna see potentially uh, helicopter money like we saw during COVID if unemployment goes up or uh, maybe we would see some politicians trying to pass a giant spending bill to help their reelection chances or does any of this matter? Just curious if you had your eye on it. So I, I do think it matters in the intermediate term. And so even though I've generally been in the inflation camp, so compared to analysts that were expecting ongoing disinflation, I've been generally expecting higher structural inflation. Uh, and, and it's a lot, a lot of it because other analysts weren't really focusing on the money supply, whereas I've been focusing on the money supply and, and those types of fiscal injections that have been responsible for boosting the money supply so quickly. Uh, uh, but it also goes in the other direction as well. So when those fiscal stimulus packages pull back to some extent, you can get a declining inflation rate of change term. It's not, it's not like the second you stop doing uh, those fiscal packages, inflation goes away. But in terms of watching the, the growth of the money supply over time, uh, it is somewhat decelerating. Uh, because the fiscal uh, uh, kind of stimulus into the economy is decelerating. And so the fact that they didn't get through the build back better, uh, and if they continue not to do anything this year, and then you run into midterms where you're probably going to get then a gridlock situation, 
Um, uh, one of the reasons I've been, uh, uh, say, warning my clients about being cautious on equity markets since December is because the combination of Fed tightening into decelerating economy, but then also that lack of, of fiscal, right? So a lot of this big boom we saw over the past two years, uh, this helicopter money is, you know, that the taps are temporarily off. Uh, or at least slowed. So there's still a structural deficit. There's still money supply being added to the economy from the government, but it's at a lower rate. Um, and so I've generally been looking at a potential for CPI, uh, headline CPI to peak out in year-over-year terms, potentially by the end of this quarter or the early part of next quarter. And that doesn't mean it necessarily goes down to the you know where the Fed wants CPI to be, uh, but it means it could roll over in terms of year-over-year rate of change terms. We don't see housing prices going up like they used to. Uh, we don't see uh, you know, some of these other kind of inflationary factors uh, continue to push up at that accelerated rate. And so the funny thing is, as the Fed tightens their monetary policy, they could see inflation kind of roll over and take credit for it. Whereas I think part of it is is that the fiscal stimulus is actually wearing off, and that was the the key part of what of of the inflation uh, we we experienced. And so I do think that, you know, if you look at the 40s, we had a very inflationary decade, but it was not a straight line. And I think the 2020s are going to be the same thing, where on average it's going to be a much more inflationary decade, uh, both in terms of money supply inflation and CPI inflation compared to the 2010s, but that it's not going to be a straight line. And so I, I do think that there's a risk to these inflationary positions throughout 2022, and they're probably going into the next year as well. Thanks, Lynn. That was a wonderful uh, discussion. I really enjoyed hearing that. Um, my question is on the Austrian School of Economics specifically. I've been reading a lot of your work, your newsletter, your tweets and things, and your analysis is amazing. And one thing I've noticed is that sometimes in your writing, the Austrian School comes up, but it doesn't seem to be kind of central to your thinking and your explanations. And sometimes there's stuff that you write about. And I think the Dutch disease that Seyfedine mentioned earlier is probably an example of something which doesn't fit into the Austrian framework, but it's commonly used in the mainstream as an explanation for why Holland had problems in the late 1950s. But I guess my question is, we obviously live in a very complicated world full of government distortions of various kinds and we need to have a framework for making sense of those distortions. But I wanted to ask a theoretical question about your understanding of the Austrian school, which is, do you think that there are any problems with the Austrian school at a fundamental theoretical level? Are there any logical fallacies built into it? For example, if we're talking about the Keynesian mainstream school of economics, I can point to a number of specific logical fallacies, such as rejection of the subjectivity theory of value, such as the, in, like the, the way in which they try to objectively quantify utility when making government policy. For example, in healthcare uh, in the UK, they have something called a quality adjusted life year, which is used to determine how much money they should spend on various healthcare outcomes. And I think that those things are built on a clear set of logical fallacies. So my question to you is, do you think that the Austrian school has any theoretical problems. And then I'd also ask Seyfedine to maybe respond uh, to what you say. If you do think there are some, then maybe Seyfedine could provide an explanation of what he, whether he sees that as a logical problem or whether he thinks there's an explanation for why it is. Uh, so it's a good set of questions. Uh, and I, so 
my overall view is that I don't really view Austrian School of Economics as having any sort of structural fallacies to it. Um, I think it's generally the best, best uh, you know, out of the schools of thought out there. It's the best set of tools, I think, to approach uh, how macroeconomics work. If there's a shortcoming to it, I think it's simply that because of the policies in place over the past five decades, it hasn't been very informative for a lot of investors in any sort of near-term or intermediate-term application for market outcomes. Uh, and so, for example, if I were to refer to an economic school uh, that I think is has been useful for, um, uh, say, investment performance over the past few decades, it'd be monetarism. And so, for example, one of the critics of Bitcoin is Steve Hankey, uh, the economist. But one thing he's very good on is inflation, uh, because unlike other e economists, he focuses a lot on money supply growth. Uh, and so he's he's been rather uh, accurate in terms of forecasting inflationary periods. That's That's been one of his strengths, because his, his school of economics uh, focuses heavily on that. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think that in this current regime, that school has been useful. Uh, whereas I think the one that has the most sound under, underpinnings to it is the Austrian School of Economics. So I think it depends on what time frame you're looking at and what you're specifically trying to do with it. And so I think some individual Austrian economists have fallacies, but the, but the underlying foundation, in my view, doesn't. It only becomes an issue when people try to make claims about markets in, say, a five to ten year period. That are you know they're missing certain variables. They're assuming that, say, the money supply the money supply inflation is happening. Therefore, you have to have price inflation, and they're not taking into account that there are other factors uh, that can cause it. Uh, but that's that's again that's not an issue with the school itself. Yeah, just just respond briefly to that before before safe. Uh, that's the way I tend to explain it because within Austrian economics you have certain concepts which are simplified concepts. So, for example, we would assume that money. The medium of exchange functions in a particular manner and then we would come up with an economic macroeconomic variable such as m1 m2 m3 and we would say in our analysis this thing equals money when in reality what money actually is functions very differently depending on the variable you're talking about depending on the instrument you're talking about whether it's a debt instrument like u.s treasury whether it's base money whether it's credit within the banking system represented by M2. And so sometimes what I see is that we make the wrong connection between real world macroeconomic variables and what we align to the Austrian theory. Whereas uh, people, people say that's a refutation of Austrian economics, but actually it's a refutation of some of the assumptions. And so that, that's probably how I see it, but I'd be uh, interested to hear what Safe's view is. Yeah, I, 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 I think I agree with it in general. I think, um, you know, day-to-day -day market calls, the way that I think about it is that um, in, in, in this current market with fiat money, the ability of uh, governments and central banks to manipulate outcomes means that, uh, you know, uh, predictions of uh, certain uh, market outcomes in the short term or the medium term is pretty much uh, an exercise it's it's not economics it's an exercise in trying to understand the politics and the psychology of the people that are making decisions so are they going to tighten or not that's going to be a more important question over the next year than anything else uh, that happens well perhaps not anything else you know we get another um, pandemic or another um, world war it's probably going to be a little bit more important but, you know, barring uh, a giant pandemic or a world war, 
the most important thing is going to be what these people in the positions of power are going to um, decide to do. So um, that's in 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 this kind of extremely manipulated market. I think it's uh, economic theory can only go so far, and trying to understand uh, economics can only really go so far. And I, and I agree on in terms of uh, monetarist in terms of the money supply. Yeah, and then that's also I'd say Austrians would agree with that. You know, increase the money supply, you would expect to see an increase in. Um, in prices, but um, you know the, the the Austrian perspective is uh, you kind of uh, I think more nuanced in that regard. If you read Rothbard's um, America's History's Great uh, America's Great Depression, his book might just have the best explanation of the business cycle. I've always used to say that, and recently somebody showed me a quote by David Gordon saying that. Hayek had once told him that he also thought that that was the best explanation of uh, the business cycle. Um, so in that book, um, Rothbard makes it clear that inflation increase in the money supply, which is the Austrian definition of inflation, doesn't just materialize uh, in uh, increases in prices of consumer goods. It also reflects on assets and inflation in assets. And in the 1920s, that was the uh, stock market bubble, which you can, um, you know, if, from the from the um, from the Keynesian perspective, this is just an entire world that doesn't exist. You know, you, monetary policy doesn't cause uh, um, bubbles um, in in stock markets. Stock markets are always reflecting fundamentals, and if they fall, it's because the government didn't spend enough money and didn't print enough money. All right. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. I know you're uh, you're braving a cold and you've humored us for almost two hours of your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This has been extremely informative and uh, I hope we'll have you on again and again and hopefully things will be uh, more orderly in the world. But I guess that's a bit of a <laughs> wishful thinking at this point. Yep. Thanks for having me and I'm always happy to have the discussion. I think we touched on a, a bunch of different topics here, so that was very useful. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good day.